I'm Scott Weatherly. Welcome to 20th Century Geek. Hi listeners and welcome back. Now, it's that time of year again, the leaves are falling from the trees, the nights are drawing in. It's getting close to being Halloween. Ghosts are abroad, witches are on their brooms, and demons are out. So I thought we'd do something special for Halloween. I could have done horror movies, and I may still before the end of the month. But first off, something happened 25 years ago that really, really set me on the path of horror. Possibly more so than Poltergeist or Freddy Krueger or any of those. In 1992, the BBC aired Ghost Watch. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. And then we're going to go into an interview with Ghost Watch's creator and writer, Stephen Volk. On Halloween night, 1992, a young, impressionable future podcaster sat down with his grandparents to watch what he believed to be a live broadcast on the BBC called Ghost Watch. The show was broadcast live from an alleged haunted house somewhere in Britain, teasing the chance that a ghost may be caught on camera that night. It was a hook that few could resist. By the end of the night, a nation, including that podcaster in waiting, was terrified and not sure what they had just watched. Well, that daft future podcast host, and most of Britain it would seem, didn't know at the time was that it wasn't a live broadcast at all. It was a docudrama-style ghost story created and written by Stephen Volk. I recently had the good fortune to interview Stephen and question him about the show and its legacy 25 years later. However, before we get to the interview, I think it's worth providing some context and insight into what has become one of the most talked about cult British horror TV shows of the 1990s. The programme you're about to watch is a unique live investigation of the supernatural. It contains material which some viewers may find to be disturbing. No creaking gates. No gothic towers, no shutter windows, yet for the past ten months this house has been the focus of an astonishing barrage of supernatural activity. In the lead up to the show, word had spread around the schoolyard that the BBC were going to be conducting this live event at a haunted house. It was must-watch TV, you didn't dare miss it for fear of being the odd one out next day in school. The story is a simple take on the clichés of poltergeist hauntings reported for decades. Activity focused on children on the verge of or going through puberty, moving objects both subtle and violent, pools of water appearing, noises coming from undefinable locations, the crashing metallic noises becoming the base of the ghost's name, Pipes. A young family had been suffering through these events for some time and tried different avenues looking for help or escape. Finally, they have been approached by the BBC to be given the opportunity to present their case and home to a live audience. The result is set up as you would expect any live TV event of the period. A studio setting with a primary host. In this case, British TV legend Michael Parkinson. A personality that had been a mainstay of British TV since the 60s and interviewed everyone as Britain's greatest talk show host. He was supported in the studio by Mike Smith, 
another well-known TV presenter as the man on the phones. The viewing public's perceived channel into this live broadcast. This was a standard setup seen so many times with TV events and telethons. The studio was the hub of the show, but as is always the case for these things, the real action was taking place in the field. The live broadcast taking place at the haunted suburban house was hosted by Sarah Green, yet another TV presenter at the top of her game and career at the time. Known for light entertainment Saturday evening and kids shows, she was hugely recognisable. She was someone the kids would have known and liked, the mums would have related to, and the dads would have had an eye for. She's the perfect choice to be the heart of the show. The icing on the cake is the fact that Mike Smith and Sarah Green were well known to be a newly married couple at the time. The counter to Sarah Green in the field was Craig Charles, a cheeky Scouse actor and comedian that would have been known for appearing on Red Dwarf. He was the jester playing to the TV audience as well as the people on site that gathered to watch the production. He keeps the mood light and acts as a distraction when the show threatens to get too dark. Until it's too late. The casting of TV presenters rather than actors, especially such well-known ones, was a stroke of genius. It added to the realism and further pulled the viewing audience into the belief that this was a legit live broadcast. With the pieces laid, the events get going. First with small supernatural instances that over the 90 minutes of the show escalate into a crazy climax. During the show, the history of the house and the area are drip-fed from the family, people that have been involved in the case, people that have lived in the area, and most creepily, at times, viewers calling in. This is building the story and giving the audience the opportunity to get things together before the full story is revealed towards the end. Better than the mystery is the ghostly appearances that are peppered throughout the show for the eagle-eyed viewer to spot. On several occasions, a ghostly apparition can be spotted in reflections stood behind people in the corner of a room, only to vanish a second later. All these well-paced and constructed elements come together to become one of the creepiest TV shows I watched as a kid. However, I wasn't the only one that was affected by the show. As I mentioned before, Mike Smith was presented as the man on the phones and an active phone number was displayed on the screen at the start of the show. If you rang the number, you would hear a message advising that it was a drama and live calls were not being taken. That is, if you were able to get through. So many people called the number that it became engaged, further adding to the belief that this was really happening. In the days after the show was aired, the BBC received a wave of letters and complaints from people explaining how it had affected them. Many recounted being scared or offended by the content, others about supernatural events in their own homes. For a broadcaster, as big as the BBC, this was more than expected. But nothing they couldn't handle. That was until a tragedy that took place five days after the show had aired. A viewer with learning disabilities became convinced that Pipes was now coming for them and committed suicide to escape the believed threat. The parents blamed the BBC and the case went to court. In the verdict it was stated, The BBC had a duty to do more than simply hint at the deception it was practising on the audience. In Ghostwatch there was a deliberate attempt to cultivate a sense of menace. 
it was also ruled that the content was not appropriate for its airtime of 9pm, just after the broadcast watershed time. The use of TV presenters known for children and family oriented shows was also criticised for suggesting to parents that the show was aimed at a younger audience. The BBC and creators argued many of the claims stating that the realism was part of the point of the show, also that it was advertised as a drama in TV listing magazines. Nothing could be done and the BBC agreed that the show would not be broadcast again. Really, that should have been the end of the story, but how do you take something good and make it better? You ban it. Scratchy VHS copies of the show did the rounds for 10 years at car boots and conventions. It was as illicit and sought after as many of the video nasties of the 1980s. It was like the BBC's dirty little secret that everyone knew about but few discussed. It was not until 2002 that it officially saw the light of day when it was pulled from the shadows by the British Film Institution and released on the DVD. Following this release, a cult following grew and group showings have taken place on a number of occasions to crowds of dedicated horror fans. I have a copy and watched it several times in preparation for this episode and I must say that it really does hold up. If you enjoy old school creepy horror with minimal gore and high tension, this is a high, high recommend. I hope that provides you with enough insight to enjoy the discussion I recently had with Ghost Watch creator Stephen Bulk. So, we are today going to be discussing probably one of the, what I would say is a milestone in my horror lifetime, uh, BBC 1992 Ghost Watch, uh, aired on Halloween night, um, and I'm talking to uh, Stephen Volk, creator and writer, and Hello. so how are you doing? Okay, good, good, good. nice to talk to you. Yes, you too, so... To jump right in, what was the inspiration for doing this sort of show then? Um, oh, quite a few different inspirations in a way. Um, well, thinking back to 1992, you have to put it in the you have to have a kind of historical marker there in terms of the development of television. I think in a way, um, and obviously, I'm talking with a great deal of hindsight looking back to it. I mean, you could be aware of something at the time but not really be able to define it but now mm. looking back I think I define that moment um, which is really I mean first of all me coming from a tradition of just loving ghost stories on TV I mean I grew up with the ghost stories for Christmas that the BBC did the signal man you know that was adapted by Andrew Davis mm. which is I think the best best ghost story ever done on TV and surprisingly similar to the Dickens story. Uh, then the stone tape, which was, I think, Christmas 1972. So, yeah. um, you know, 20 years amazingly before Ghost Watch, but that always really was a, was a turning point for me because it, um, I loved the genre, you know, when I watched that as a teenager in the seventies. Um, <laughs> but to me, it was also, you know, it was intelligent. It was good characters, I thought, and you know, it was as well wrought and as well um, crafted, I think, as any 
standalone play on the BBC at the time, you know, play for today or whatever it was, or Wednesday play. So it, it kind of convinced me that even though I love the genre, I shouldn't be embarrassed by trying to do it really well, you know mm. what I mean? Um, so, so that was a quite a, quite a, a watershed moment for me, the Stone Tape. Um, and I think, you know, I pitched Ghostwatch about 1988, 89, even though it was, wasn't made until 92. Um, so first of all, I wanted to create a really good old-fashioned ghost story on television. And, and first of all, the discussions were about creating a drama about parapsychology, about ghost hunting, you know, about modern technology, trying to uh, find a ghost in a haunted house kind of thing. Uh, but it was it was really in the format of a traditional drama. Mm. Um, uh, and it was, um, and the traditional tra- traditional drama uh, built up to a climax, uh, which was a live transmission from a haunted house. Okay, and the BBC didn't want to do this initial proposal for a six-part series, um, so the producers said, well, you know, there might be a slot for a 90-minute um, drama. Do you think we could get, uh, get it done in that? And I said, well, I can't really shoehorn a six-hour drama series that I planned, which which was still called Ghostwatch, funnily enough. Mm. I can't do that in 90 minutes. But I remember off the top of my head in that meeting, I said, what if we did the last episode? But we did it, you know, live broadcast from Haunted Ash, but what if we did it as if it was live? as if it was a live broadcast um, happening as you're watching. And she thought, you know, oh, my God, do you think we can do it? And I said, well, let's, let's try. You know, it seems such an unusual idea and difficult to pull off and everything. Let's go for it. But um, but to answer your question, I think looking back on it, I think we both kind of understood by that moment when I pitched it that, that there would be a subtext to it, which would be about the nature of TV in a way, both mm. the nature of our we as the audience react to TV as we're watching it, how we become involved, that kind of wish fulfillment, or, oh my God, I want to see a ghost. I really want to see a ghost. And you kind of make it happen, which is very important to the drama. Yeah. Um, but also, returning to my first point, in 1992, it was kind of foothills of, of reality TV in a way. There were shows like Rescue 999, which were kind of documentaries, but they had dramatized bits with actors in it. Yes. And so drama series like um, Hill Street Blues or NYPD Blue were starting to use handheld cameras in, in the way documentaries did. So dramas were starting to look a wee bit like documentaries and documentaries were starting to dramatize bits like dramas. So there was this, this weird kind of crossover of the two genres. They were no longer kind of separate. So I, I think looking back at it, we were trying to capture that idea that of not be, of breaking the rules between documentary and drama at the time. Um, so that, I think we both had a sense of that going in. Um, but of course we, you know, as we, as we chat about this, we can talk a little bit more about what that, what that meant ultimately. But, but I mean, um, really, you know, creating a good old fashioned ghost story, like, like the stone tape really excited mm. me was important. You know, I remember watching that and going into school the next day and, you know, wanting nothing more than just talk about it, you know, as you do with great tv i think to, the, to this day you know the water cooler moment kind of thing so that that is what i wanted to do but also i felt that there was there was a level of satire under the surface about the medium that i also wanted to explore through the ghost story at the same time really yeah i think really i mean i watched it very recently literally within the last couple of hours just to sort of you know refresh my memory again i watched it several times last week and it's almost like it's ahead of its time um 
but wouldn't have worked, say, 10 years later, because, you know, you'd be getting into the internet age and all that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, also the age of everyone questioning everything and fake news that, as we've got today and everything like that. And it's almost like today we don't trust anything we see. Uh, so we're so sceptical about watching anything. I don't think... Um, I don't think, you know, even five years later, it wouldn't have worked as well, really. Um, and there are two things happened then. Of course, reality TV started taking off mm. uh, and the kind of most haunted type shows and the paranormal type shows um, that, you know, very obvious kind of fakery, uh, yeah. if you like, which I think is kind of the opposite of what I was trying to do. Um, you know, that almost became a kind of subgenre on TV, really. So, so you know, people, people since every few years say, you know what would you do if you were doing it again? I would, I would say, well, you wouldn't do it again. I, yeah. I think if you if you even had the notion today or in the last five years, um, you wouldn't bother doing it as a drama. If anything, you'd do it as a reality show. You'd get a bunch of celebrities or something. I'm sure such things have been done over the years many times. You know, like the stars of Coronation Street on Most Haunted. Mm. I mean, that, you know, it's almost like a cliche now, really. So I'm glad we did it when we did. God knows how it ever happened, really, because there were lots of obstacles um, to it ever happening, um, and many times when we thought it wouldn't happen. But um, but it was, I think, it was the right thing at the right time. I definitely think so. I mean, like you say, it's almost it's funny you say that. I mean, it's there is an element of satire in it, of you know poking fun at sort of not poking fun, but you know what I mean, commenting on that sort of like the, the birth burgeoning of um, uh, reality TV and that thing of instant. Interaction. Well, the whole, the whole concept really is, um, when you boil it down to it, I thought, uh, you know, the con that what made it exciting to me as an idea was, you know, what is the most philosophically deep uh, thing we could consider? Well, mm. you know, is there life after death? Do we, you know, when we die, is there any more to existence than, than, than this mortal coil? It's a pretty profound question. So... The idea that TV would would shine its uh, light on the question, you know, the idea, what would they do if they did that? Well, they turn it into a kind of light entertainment show with yeah. all the weaponry that that would have, and that that I found was both ludicrous and, you know, quite exciting at the same time. <laughs> so <laughs> I I just thought that the the madness of it, the madness of you know satellite link ups, phone in. Well, do you know what? Um, Watching and it, all that stuff, you know, applied to something that's really quite profound and fundamental to human existence, you know, is well, that was the friction that I enjoyed. Really. The, the irony of it is, and you know, you say it in a satire, and that, that, you know, almost like you say, the ludicrous nature of it. When I watched this um, the other evening, I followed it up straight away with one of the um, most haunting lives they did. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm telling you. <laughs> It's almost beat for beat. <laughs> the same. Um, so they yeah, have. Never watched, uh, I never watched Most Haunted. I must admit, firstly because I I, I still refuse to get Sky. Yeah. Um, my, my, just on principle, even though people say I'm mad, um, it's the it's the kind of Murdoch empire that I'm not hugely <laughs> um, in favour of, you know. Um, so um, so I missed out on that, but quite quite honestly, I'm quite grateful to because. Um, people have said do you feel responsible for that and I you know I say not at all really because mm. um, I think there's a world of difference kind of pandering to people's gullibility and uh, which is I think what they do uh, pandering yes. to people's gullibility about believing about the supernatural and I think what 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 we were trying to do is get people to um, 
first of all, enjoy a ghost story and get it, mm. but also to question what do they trust? Do they trust the messages from the TV set? Do they trust what they're looking at or the pictures that they see? Are they being told something? Uh, are, are, is the reality different from what they're watching? So, in a, you know, I defend myself saying, you know, I, I, I w- there's no way I would want to be behind, be behind one of those paranormal shows because I think the function of drama is to challenge and get the audience to ask questions. So that was that's the fundamental difference between the two, really. But there's a parapsychologist called Kieran O'Keefe who yes. I think uh, gives... Um, he's a big fan of Ghostwatch, and he actually... I saw him once give a talk uh, in which he... He explained all the similarities between Ghostwatch and um, uh, Most Haunted, and it was quite hilariously convincing. <laughs> oh, I believe it. I have got no doubt in my mind that Yvette Fielding was sat down one evening, and I'll put up allegedly around this, but she was sat down one evening yeah. and was just like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that. that. We're doing that. So think yeah, about that, though, because the, sort of, the structure of it, it's what was the... Um, the, the 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 talk about the ghost story, um, it's a I don't want to say a take, but it it, it uses the Enfield haunting as a basis. Well, is that is that true? Is that, well, is that... it was one of the things I looked at. I, I'm 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 quite firm that I didn't base it on that. Yeah. Um. I I I you know I wrote uh, read sorry Freud and slip. I read lots of books about poltergeists. You know, um. There's one book by. Uh, role for that poltergeist, you know, about well, endless cases in America, and, yeah. you know, country, and obviously I did not specifically for this project, but I had read this house is haunted, um, and um, and I think I really, I, I really had various, you know, it's kind of a given that 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 because I wanted a um, archetypal poltergeist uh, setup. I wanted a you know a pubescent girl to be part of it, mm. and because I the kind of double take, um, I wanted two girls, and I kind of want I also wanted that moment halfway through when one of them is found breaking it. Um, yes. Um, but I think that I think the main thing was that made it seem like uh, Enfield were two things. One was that we set it in London, mm-hmm. which is again nothing to do with my decision really. It just happened to be where the production was based. Um, uh, I mean, m- mine was a family that had broken up, whereas um, the family in, in Enfield, I don't think, had broken up. I might be wrong about that, but I wasn't aware of it. Uh, these things weren't clear to me at the time, kind of thing. Mm. Um, and um, uh, oh, what was the other thing I was going to say? Um, oh, yes, the other thing was that I actually uh, deliberately asked the producer to get Guy Playfair as a consultant on the program. Um, because I wanted him to talk to the director and the actors about what it's like to investigate poltergeist. Now, first of all, I think I would hardly do that if I felt I was using his book as source material. No. Uh, I think uh, it's obvious that I wouldn't do that. Uh, he was an authority. I thought he could describe what was going on in terms of how the voices were. The voice on tape was, was um, achieved mm-hmm. and... And indeed, they did get him in to do it. Um, I think the problem for for Guy, possibly, was that the production designer did base some of the the look of the bedrooms on um, on stills 
from the Enfield Poltergeist book or yes. other material which added to the feeling along with the London setting that it was it was getting quite similar but um, it really wasn't based on that I, w- I mean it would have been crazy to base something on a true story without really going through the, the rights process and I wouldn't have I wouldn't have uh, risked risk that mm. so uh, so it was it was part of the background research that I did but I really didn't want to, um, I always defended it by saying that I looked into lots of lots of um, uh, family scenarios and it seemed it seemed that I was dramatizing the archetypal one yeah. rather than the specific one well, I think it's one of those, isn't it? So, um, there are, there are, you know, within poltergeist cases or alleged poltergeist cases, there's certain um, standards. There are certain things that you know are part of those cases, like you say, prepubescent children and sort of like you know um, items being thrown around and potential yeah, possession, yeah. that sort of thing. And I suppose it's the same in America. If you if you do in a haunted house kind of film in America, then there's going to be automatic, you know, or how much of it is inspired by Amityville or something similar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because there are certain certain uh, certain uh, tropes that are, that recur, really. Yeah, yeah. So, what was production actually like then? Because I mean, watching it, it's uh, it se- it it seems seamless. Like the interactions between the the. Well, it wasn't uh, it wasn't filmed live. It went out on uh, Halloween, as you know, and uh, but it was filmed in July. So and it was filmed over, I think, uh, maybe a week or two. But they did use very. I think they had a week. Um, Gosh, I don't know the exact time of, of, um, of the amount of shooting, but about fifty percent of it was in uh, the place in um, Northolt that uh, was uh, uh, Fox Hill Drive, um, and you know, walking around the house and that kind of thing, so that they had that footage to play back in the studio, and then there was a week or two in the studio to with Parkinson and the um, Doctor Pasco commenting mm. on the action kind of thing, and then it was. But the stuff in the house was very much. I think almost they would rehearse a very long uh, kind of continuous take in the morning, you know, for several minutes, mm. if not you know, five minutes even. Um, uh, and then they'd and then they'd film in the afternoon. So it was very very long takes to get that um, verisimilitude of of live TV, you know, keeping in mistakes and that kind of thing. Um, uh, which the which the director Leslie Manning is very was very keen, thank goodness, to to make it as off the cuff as possible. I mean, what what I feared um, to begin with that we would get a director that wanted to kind of show off and do something that would sit on their showreel when they go to Hollywood, you know, and yes. want to shoot it in thirty-five millimeter widescreen, which is would have been absolutely ludicrous, you know. So I mean, from the get-go, Leslie kind of got it in terms of um, how to do it and um, the things that that in terms of. Um, the way to do it, you know, which is which is which is one of the one of the major things you want from a director is I know how to do it, you know, um, and then figuring out how to do it, which is which is a lot more complex because there were, I mean, there were funny things that that got in a way whereby you couldn't use a drama crew and an outside broadcast crew, so she couldn't use a crew that comes with the scanner truck, you know the. Um, the scanner truck that, that features in, in in the action, you know, where mm-hmm. they look in on an editing desk at the action outside. She couldn't use that because it broke union rules to do to have two crews on one thing, and they were in different unions. You see, so so what she had to do in the end is is use a drama crew, but she had to hire the scanner truck 
as a prop. Oh, um, wow. So there was, I mean, it sounds just nonsense, but she had to get around certain problems that way, um, which uh, you don't realize when you're watching it, really. Uh, and things like the, um, you know, some of the graphics and the uh, heat-sensitive cameras, I think, were, were used uh, for the first time in uh, in the context we were using them, you know. So so it was really hard to press some of the uh, technology, which I think is, is, I mean, even though it seems old-fashioned now, I quite... I really like that you look back 25 years and you see the technology of the time in a funny kind of way. It, it almost makes it, it makes it work better um, <laughs> because you, you go back to a, a, something that's obviously not of now. But um, if you watch it with an audience, I, I find even now that they there's the most wonderful thing where um, if you're at a screening, you know, you show it on a big screen and. You know, these very um, genre-weary students will watch it and start kind of sniggering at the beginning and laughing at the performances and, mm. you know, nudging each other, that kind of thing. But there's always a weird moment about halfway in where they start to kind of go quiet and the laughter becomes a bit more nervous. And then the second half is usually a little, pretty much quiet. And then by <laughs> the end, they they really kind of like it and, uh, and kind of applaud it at the end. But it's kind of like the laughter dies out after a while. And even though... They know it's on a big screen. They know it's being projected. They know it's not Halloween like 1992. They something gets under their skin, and I love that. I love that. It's almost like the because it's shot in a certain way. It's shot as if it's live. Yeah. It's like that very uh, immediacy of that that, that visual quality uh, kind of bypasses the critical faculty, bypasses the part of your mind that says no, this was done 20 years ago. And it kind of just acts on the part of your brain, the kind of lizard brain that says, no, this is really happening. <laughs> oh, it does. Kind of, I can't believe it. You kind of feel at a certain level that it really is happening. It really does. And I think, that, you know, a big a big part of that, um, I mean, thinking back to when I watched it live um, back in the day, the, the credence you have, you know, when you've got people like Michael Parkinson, Sarah Green, you know, that I know as presenters. So you know, and then Craig Charles, which at the time I sort of knew him from Red Dwarf, yeah. doing this, it sort of like it added that thing of like, oh, it is live and it is real, and it's you know, yeah. it sort of it added to the thing. You are pulled into it because it's not known actors, um, yeah. and even today, I well, think. Well, the good thing was that the people we went to, you know, Parkinson and Sarah and uh, poor old Mike Smith, who's no longer with us, unfortunately, and Craig Charles, I think universally they all immediately got it as an idea. You know, yeah. it wasn't like. They, um, I mean, other people turned it down because I think Annika Rice turned it down. <laughs> Do you remember her from Treasure Hunt? Um, and uh, I think uh, the BBC wouldn't allow Nick Ross to do it because he was a valuable commodity on Crime Watch and um, uh, things like that. But um, there were people that turned it, turned it down because they, you know, they didn't. It didn't their career profile yeah. but the people that did agree to do it like parkinson i mean they you know he's a he's so bright parky he immediately when i met him he immediately said you know i read this i immediately got what you're trying to do it's really really fun and exciting and uh, and, and they were all like that really you know Craig, Craig immediately he said you know i get it i'm the idiot i'm the idiot on the street talking to talking to people in the street so yeah he got that <laughs> that's it i mean they fit their roles i have to admit um, yeah. Michael Parkinson's sort of like dry sense of humour acts yeah, as, a, as an anchor back in the studio. Yorkshire, blunt Yorkshire scepticism. Yeah, that worked really well, didn't it? It does work so so well against, like you say, Sarah, who's on the you know Sarah Green on site. 
you can see she's getting more and more nervous and constantly Michael Parkin's still like, well, let's bring it back down to earth because, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so as the, as the writer and creator, one of the things, because it, it does feel incredibly natural. So you say about those long rehearsals and, yeah. uh, and you know, knowing, having seen sort of people like Craig Charles live and stuff. Was there any ad-libbing or sort of like, you know, going off book or anything? That was... Yeah, there was, a, there was a fair bit. Um, I mean, the main thing, you know, I, I felt right from the beginning that I didn't want people to ad-lib. I mean, the script is really there for them to feel secure yeah. and have a, a structure. Otherwise, ad-libbing doesn't get anywhere, really. You need them to hit certain points. Um, but right from the beginning, I think uh, me and the director both, both gave... Um, Parkinson certainly, you know, let it... I think he asked, you know, can I say this my own way? You know, mm. and I thought, bloody hell, yeah, of course you can. You've been doing, you've been doing interviews for... As long yeah, as I've yeah. had a hot dinner, you know how you would say things. And of course, when you also when you're dealing with a non-actor, a non-professional actor, even though he's appeared on TV, uh, you don't want to constrain them really with learning lines. Um, no. You'd rather than being spontaneous about it, you know? And I think, again, with Craig, I think he threw some things in that, that were spontaneous and a bit of fun. I mean, it was, you know, I scripted the thing where he's he's got the mask on and he jumps out and scares her and they just they they kind of riffed on that a little bit, slightly different lines, but he, he knew what that he knew what that moment was about, you know. And yes. and uh, I think intelligent actors know that the moment is what's important to writers, not the you know not the absolute. Um, That's it. Yeah. Detail, detail of the words, you know, at least not with me anyway. It's more important for them to convey something that feels um, that feels spontaneous. And it works so well. I mean, it, it does feel natural. There's there was there are interactions between. Um, you know, and obviously with they say don't work with kids and stuff, and they're obviously less experienced actresses at the time. But having someone you know who seems natural, like Sarah Green or Craig Charles, but it, it, it you know, you you look we past were, we any were potential. Also, um, we also had an unexpected bonus because I think um, uh, we sent it to Sarah Green, and she obviously was reading it at home. And uh, Mike Smith got a hold of the script and started reading it, and contacted the producer and said, "Can I be in it?" Oh, really? uh, so, the, so the producer wrote, uh, you know, picked up the phone to me and said, "Listen, we got Sarah Green, and what about Mike Smith as well?" You know, and I, I thought about it for I think about ten seconds, <laughs> uh, because you're always wary about things like that coming from left field, and you've got to think of the repercussions of, of of something like that, you know. Yeah. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought it was absolutely terrific to have a well-known celebrity couple, you know, that people watching it would know are a couple, uh, and then separate. Um, you know, so that one is in the studio and one is in the house. I thought this, you know, this could be, this could really uh, raise the raise the ante, you know, on, on the whole drama, really. So, so it, it, you know, it didn't take me long to realise that would have been that's even even better. Yes, um, yes. It becomes like you say, it's the heart of it in a way. I mean, it, you see that, you know, it, it, you talk about the bit where um, Craig Charles jumps out wearing the mask, and it's all been a bet yeah. between him and and Mark Smith. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it all but starts also, off as also fun. the thing is, uh, I think the thing about the bet was um, well, that was them improvising. To be honest, I didn't put that in. But but the thing was, what it emphasised, I didn't. Again, I didn't realise this until later that the um, uh, both you know the, the film crew that goes into the haunted house are a kind of surrogate family mm. that the kids attach to, so they don't want them to go. So they produce more manifestations. They they kind of you know their family's broken up, so this other family comes in to rescue them. So they get attached to them. They get attached to the scientists and all the rest of it, which I think is 
can be true in in poltergeist investigations. You know, people can you know people that go in do become very close to the family. But also, I think it it it, it stretched beyond that. I think for me in the drama because it it showed how we the audience get attached to people that we see on TV. You know, couples that we see that we're aware of are married couple. We, we have an attachment to them. You know, so so there are family as well. Um, you know, I've I've noticed years ago that you know sometimes you know. I say, I say to my wife, for instance, bloody hell, I see Sue Perkins on TV more than I see you. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? You actually see people on TV, you're more familiar with them sometimes than, than you are family members. Um, and that, that struck me as a kind of irony that we, that we kind of, you know, it's more of an irony now on the internet where we've got friends that are kind of electronic friends. Yes. Than we, but, um, but back then I was even aware that, you know, we, we, we have a kind of electronic friend network. Um, uh, that's a kind of non-physical one, you know. It's true. I mean, I think the thing is watching the program again, like when I was pulled into it then and now watching it, is that recognition of these celebrity hosts, you know, that I recognise yeah. from TV. And you say about the relationships, there's something in it about from the girls' point of view. It is that thing of. Um... Well, one of the things as well was that the BBC at one stage told us to do it without any celebrities and have. Um actors pretending to be reporters and mm. celebrities, uh, which I think would have... I mean, that's one of the many things that the producer never even told me because she just thought I'd go nuts. Um, yeah. <laughs> it defies the point. It goes against the it's point. A kind of, it's a typical BBC thing whereby, to them, it's the perfectly natural thing to suggest, but to anyone with any common sense, including the audience, it makes no sense whatsoever. Um, but it's about people suggesting something in order to keep their jobs and yes. not about creating exciting TV, quite frankly. You no, know, I understand that. I mean, when you watch it, the fact that I know them from that point of view, like watching the girls as well, sort of, I say overcoming their sort of, you know, their performances, which are actually pretty good. Um, one of the things I get is that desire from the kids to be believed. Yeah. You know, it's not just about they're looking to be rescued, but also like they've been ridiculed. It's like, no, no, look, look. Absolutely, yeah. Look yeah. at what's happening. Um, so to and have those celebrities playing, really that's helps. That's all playing to, you know, uh, and the mother says that, doesn't she? She wants, that's the reason she gives for wanting the TV cameras so that people can see that they're telling the truth kind of thing. Yeah. You know, so we get kind of drawn into the story in that way. And, and there's several moments where, I don't know if you noticed it, you've only seen it recently, but the kids look straight in the camera and talk to us. Yes. Um, there's a moment where uh, they try to get them to leave and say, no, they've got to stay, they've got to, you know, they want to stay. They want to. They want to see. They want to see pipes. They're waiting for them, and she looks right at the camera. You know, and it's quite a creepy moment because it breaks that fourth wall in a way. It um, is chilling actually. Cause it's, I know what you mean. But, um, but, it... it's, but it's it's really those kind of moments for me that uh, wanted to. I wanted to a, a, a kind of a way in which we become part of what's happening. You know, it's 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 um, it turns on us. We're complicit in the outcome mm. because we tune in on on Halloween to you know we want to see a ghost. Nothing happens for forty five minutes. You know that again was difficult to get a, get away uh, in this in the in the uh, script conferences. Nothing's going to happen for forty five minutes of this ninety minute drama. You know, but um, you know the, the the whole point is that we're willing the ghost to appear. We're actually creating it, which is why that you know one of the scientists says, "Oh my God, we've created a massive seance." through the TV audience, you know, which is a key idea of the whole drama, you know, mm. and it's, um, 
just like people around a seance table, they've kind of willed something into existence. It's manifested because of a wish fulfillment, you know. And the and and like all in horror, all wish fulfillments go wrong, don't they? Let's face yeah. it. That's what horror is about. Yeah. You're, it's like the monkey's paw, the granddaddy of all horror horror mm. stories. You, you the monkey's paw. You make a wish and someone knocks on your door and it's horrible you know it's kind of like it's the it's the return of the repressed as freud would say you you, you make a wish you know and it's and it kind of bites you um so that's that's kind of you know i was aware all the time even though i was constructing this as a tv show as light entertainment in terms of interviews that kind of thing on the surface but fundamentally that construction is really horror it's yes. really about stripping away every single um part of the narrative that gives you support, you know, psychology, science, yeah. you know, God, everything that gives you family, you know, everything is taken away. And finally, you know, the anchor man who is the bedrock of television, who is always in control and always, always reassures you, even he doesn't know what the fuck's going on. Yeah. So every, every bit of reassurance, uh, that again is, is a kind of device that's in horror. Everything that, everything that gives you um, protection is stripped away. Know, so that you know, I was aware of the underlying things like that in construction, even though that on the surface it was completely unlike a, a, a conventional horror screenplay. You know, um, so that was fun having a mixture of the two. <laughs> well, one of the things I say is I talk I talk a lot about this when you know when you think of films, it, it's difficult to achieve. It's in, something I've called like perfect escalation. And it's that thing yeah. of going from naught to whatever the climax is. But without taking like huge leaps of logic, all of a sudden to try and reach that point. And the more I watch yeah. this, as I've watched it recently, there's so much that's peppered throughout it, whether it be through uh, what Dr. Pasco is saying, or one of the girls says, or it, something that's been you know that's evidenced or something that plays into the finish. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I that was the construction really uh, from the beginning. You know, nothing must really happen in the first half. Mm. Um, and that was really hard to sell sell them on the BBC um, because they were like, "Why should you keep watching?" Um, and I was like, "Well, you would keep watching if this was if yeah. this was a show was supposed to come from the haunted house and we're promising you we, you're going to see a ghost, you'd keep watching." Um, and and I think paradoxically, if we delivered something scary in the first ten minutes, um, a you'd have nowhere to go with it because yeah. I don't know what you'd do twenty minutes in. Um, but, but B, you wouldn't believe it. It wouldn't be plausible. Um, so I was much more that we're going to this time and this place. We're making this promise. We've got all the big guns of technology in, like never before in history. It's Halloween night when these things happen. We're switching everything on, and we're hoping for the best. And meanwhile, we're going to tell you the background to this story, and we're going to tell you what the technology is. We'll tell you some other ghost stories. So so I used that first 45 minutes to just set up the backstory, the characters, you know, the characters of the presenter, all those things, Great child, you know, the scientist in the studio, the backstory about that, and uh, basically get you into the whole thing and set up all the things that were going to pay off in the, in the second half, like the heat, heat mm. sensitive camera, the, the, the temperature detectors, all the things that were going to, going to pop yeah. at certain moments in the second half, you know, um, but there were really two crucial things that I'm really I will continue to be proud of in Ghostwatch, however else it's it's criticised, and that's the two moments. One is um, one is where they realise that the pictures 
still on the wall and it shouldn't be on the wall because and then they realize that what they're being played is a recording mm. and they're not actually seeing what's really happening in the house and i think that's quite a chilling moment but the other one which i'm most proud of is when the camera pans past the window and you yes. see the ghost and i love that michael parkinson says i don't see anything do you yeah, and I love I love that people at home would be saying, "Well, hang on, I did see something." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that is, I mean, that is worth all the time I spent writing it to achieve that one moment because I've never seen that done on TV in something scary where someone you show something and you tell people that they didn't see it. Yeah, it's um, and that for me is, is I have a kind of badge of pride of getting away with that notion of getting people to think, "Hang on, did I?" I did see something, didn't I? You know, uh, I'm very proud of that. Oh, you should be. I mean, for me, there are there are two um, glimpses. I would say that of the ghost, uh, which is so effective and really make me jump. And it's it's that benefit, or I don't know whether you say it's the benefit or curse of DVDs and Blu-rays. The first one is to say that is the patio window. Oh yeah, yeah. Is when you see it in the patio window and it sort of pans. It's in the reflection and then it pans round to the kitchen. It's not there. And then the second one is during the escape or during the evacuation at the end, and the the younger of the girls says, "I've got to talk. I've got to talk to Pipes," and it is that moment when she's trying to talk to the audience and saying, "You know, you've got to watch." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a very brief second where the cameraman just pans into the bedroom, and the ghost is stood by the. I'm getting chills talking about. It. <laughs> stood in front of the curtains, and it pans away, and it pans back, and it's gone. And I'm, I'm even I'm like I'm going through frame by frame, going, "Oh no, I saw that! I saw that!" It's so good. <laughs> So well done. Thank you, thank you. But of course, people didn't—they didn't so much record things and watch them back in those days. And certainly, they probably loads probably didn't record that program. I don't think really. No, I'm so glad uh, I could get on DVD. You know, um, the really annoying thing was that there was a double bill, I think, of horror films on BBC Two. So um, I was really mad at that because anyone that was a horror film fan would probably have watched the, the double bill that was on BBC Two. I'll, um, explain, I'll, I'll explain something for, for that purpose. I was staying at a, one of my grandparents on the night it was aired and it, because it was Halloween they were going to let me watch something scary and um, I wasn't allowed to stay up to watch the horror films so they let me watch this instead thinking well it's got it. They, they assumed it was real sort of thing and um, uh, you know, I've seen some of the advertisements and thought, and then within 20 minutes they sort of clocked onto what it was, and we're like, oh no, off to bed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've, I managed to see it all. But um, it, yeah, some of the scares in it are so well timed, and again, some of the stories, and when you learn about what who the ghost is, um, and you start to tie in, you know, like the stories. You've got the two women stood in the field, and they talk about the the dog that that was a it was killed and the girl that went oh, missing. Oh, yeah, some people, some people really hated that, you know, some people, because they can't stand, even though, you know, my, my attitude was, all it is is someone talking. Um, yeah. It's just someone saying stuff that I've written down. I've just written some stuff down and someone just says it. Um, but they can't, they really found out one of the most disturbing things because it involved an animal. Uh, yeah. People have a massive sens- sensibility to towards things about animals. It's a very it weird a, British a thing, top, I think. But, but I was kind of just adding just adding weirdness. Again, it, it harkens back to Nigel Neal, one of my favourite uh, writers, you know, and the stone tape and, mm. and uh, Wait a Mess on the Pit. And, and he's got this wonderful amalgamation in his best work of, of science and technology and paganism and unknown forces and that kind of thing. And I just wanted a sense of that the whole area was... Um, 
kind of replete with these. The, it was like a bad place. I suppose that's a real Stephen King kind of idea, isn't it? Just yeah. the whole thing is bad going back through history, you know. And I think, um, I think I, again, I think the idea that the scientist talks about the onion skin being peeled away of history. I think that's. I think I took that again from from uh, the stone tape because the stone tape is really about technology uh, scientists trying to come up with a new mode of technology in a house that they discover is haunted unless they kind of wipe they wipe away one level of the haunting they they, they another level underneath it kind of emerges mm. um, so that was my explicit reference to the stone tape really and and luckily there are people out there like Kim Newman who are absolute fans of the genre that immediately recognize things like that so that's very gratifying <laughs> it is excellent I mean one of the things I'm curious about from you know you said you wrote it and stuff and you said about your inspirations throughout it obviously they receive viewer calls and there's some viewer submissions of um, their own ghost stories were those inspired by any any real events or things you'd heard or were they just sort yeah, of yeah they were they were, um, they were all real oh. um, uh, we didn't get as many as I, th- I thought we would get kind of dozens to be honest but I don't know whether it was last uh, left till the last minute in the production um, or what but um, they were kind of you know, I thought everyone, you know, on the crew would have some kind of ghost story that they could mm. record, but maybe they didn't give it priority or something. But certainly, the ones they used were were um, were true. And the, the woman, in fact, the woman called Laura, whose face kind of still, you know, breaks up halfway through her story, yeah. um, because something goes wrong with the machine, uh, and and then the technician walks out in front of the camera. Um, she's a friend of mine, uh, and she started to tell that story about. You know the old house and her grandmother's house and that kind of thing. Um, uh, so I kind of roped her into it. I feel a bit guilty, but um, <laughs> no, those were absolutely real. Those, um, but I, again, it comes from just devising it in such a way as saying, you know, if the BBC were doing a light entertainment program on Halloween to to um, and a ghost might or might not appear, then they they obviously would want some padding in case nothing was happening. So mm. they would. They would have these little ghost stories to interject, you know, um, as you would on a, uh, you know, red nose day, and like you see all, all these things still being kind of used, these cutaway little films and, and things like that. So I was kind of using all those devices, you know, the satellite link up and all the rest of it. Obviously, he wasn't in New York, um, no. uh, and you know, just trying to get a, a, just just the sense of all the things that all the devices that are used in TV and in the early nineties, really. It's so good. I mean, so from your point of view, then obviously you know you um, you pitched it, you wrote it, you were involved in the production, that sort of thing. Um, you you knew it was a drama, so when it was aired and it was going out and that sort of thing, did you have any idea that there would be any sort of um, controversy or backlash towards it? Um, I thought there might be a bit. Um. Mm. I mean, I always write things on the basis of writing them for people that will get what you're doing, not for people that won't. So if you're writing a horror film, you're not writing it with your granny in mind or the nervous person that lives next door that doesn't even like horror films. Obviously, you're not. You're writing it for someone that hopefully is like you and would like that kind of thing. So Mm. my benchmark was always myself. And in the way that when I saw uh, the stone tape in Christmas 1972, you know, what would have excited me 
you know, what would excite a 12, 13-year-old kid who was into the kind of films I was into? What would really, you know, float their boat if they were watching something on Halloween night? And what would make them really, what would scare them as a ghost story? And, and, and what would strike them as really, you know, fun and clever? Um, so that's what I was doing it for. Of course, the problem with TV is it's, it's you know, the whole point of broadcasting is a broad audience, you know, so there's a you, you haven't just got those people. Mm. You have people that might tune in on. I mean, why? You know, why super nervous people who don't like things supernatural would tune into something called Ghost Watch from Haunted House? I have no idea whatsoever. But sometimes people miss. You know, they don't all read the Radio Times. They don't all watch the beginning of the program. Um, and um, it wasn't so much that they objected to the program. We had, you know. Um, bike back the program with Sue Lawley and people were saying you know it shouldn't be allowed but it shouldn't have gone on it was you know it was very well made and mm. it was a really good program but it shouldn't be allowed and that was to do with their relationship with the BBC and to do with their relationship of, of trust with the BBC and, and of course what maddened me was that the whole drama was about trust what do you trust from TV, you know? And people didn't extrapolate. The people that objected didn't extrapolate from what they felt to what the drama was trying to say. I don't think they kind of thought this was considered and written for a purpose like they would a, a normal drama. So they didn't think, hang on, what is this? You know, I, I don't like using the word message, but what is it trying to do? Because yeah. um, I think if they had asked that question, they'd say, well, it's getting me to think about what I'm watching. And what I'm taking at face value, and uh, maybe I shouldn't take things at face value, you know. Mm. Um, but that didn't really happen. People objected to being, I think, being made mugs of, and being made mugs of by the BBC in particular. I yeah. thought they, that's not on. We're paying our license fee, and you're taking the piss, um, you know. And we weren't taking the piss. I was doing a drama for drama lovers and horror lovers in a certain way to make it effective, and as such. I didn't really want to give away the punchline of the joke before you tell the joke. I mean, that's surely the mark of the worst kind of pub bore, isn't it? To say, oh, have you heard the joke about the lizard in sheep's clothing? Well, there's this bloke that goes into, you yeah. know, well, he told you what the punchline is going to be. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I didn't want to say, oh, here we are, nine o'clock, and it says in Radio Times, here's a drama that looks like a documentary. Oh, that's fun. You know, mm. that would, and that's what the BBC would want to do, really, and in some ways did try and do. Um, and I, I thought, quite frankly, in the build-up to it going out, that they'd blown it because they'd actually just, um, you know, told everyone it's going to be a drama. Uh, they insisted on putting the Screen 1 titles before mm. the drama, so, so, which was a drama thread, you know. Mm. Uh, screen 1 was a, dra a drama series of individual plays, Um or films, so I thought, well, that gives the bloody game away for a start, doesn't it? But of course, luckily, loads of people didn't even know that branding, which is, again, typical of the BBC. Um, but, you know, they, um, they they were worried about the overreaction, and there was, there was to be fair, a massive uh, reaction. And the thing was, at the time when it went out, the, the reaction in the weeks to follow, you know, the BBC virtually battened down the hatches and... and didn't want the program mentioned ever again anywhere um, because of the furor and everything like that. So for 10 years, I actually thought nobody actually liked it. And um, <laughs> the only people that actually watched it were the, were the um, I think, uh, uh, I can't remember how many thousand complained about it, you know, jamming the uh, switchboard. 
But the great thing about, um, well, firstly, the internet, and secondly, the um, BFI was we got a phone call when it was coming up to the 10th anniversary in 2002. And the guy at the television archive DVD department um, wanted to release it on DVD. Mm. And, um, you know, were we available to do a um, commentary, me and the director and producer, and it was like that was a real shot in the arm because we always wanted to discuss it. We always wanted to go on telly and tell people what we were trying to do. Uh, instead of which, it was kind of like it went out. It was called a hoax by the tabloids, and that's how it remained for like ten years. So only in two thousand and two did the director and I get a chance to, re, you know, and the producer uh, record a commentary and say why we'd done it like this and basically all the things that I've been telling you for the last half hour. Yeah. Um, you know, so that was a great vindication. And, of course, what happened then, of course, is the people who maybe hadn't seen the ending, who hadn't heard us explaining why we'd done it, or people that just wanted to see it again because they didn't quite believe it the first time kind of thing. Um, mostly kids, you know. Mm. Often it had a real effect on kids, maybe about 10 or 12. And they got a chance to watch it again. And, you know, and then I started getting requests to go to screenings, do Q&As, that kind of thing, do interviews about it. And then, you know, it really turned around into realizing that there were thousands of people out there that were real fans of it and loads of people who really rated it highly in, the, in genre terms. And, um, you know, there were fans that, you know, like Rich uh, Lorden, who went on to make a, a full-length uh, documentary about the making of it, which was fantastic. Um and um, it's really gratifying to this day that people remember it. It's still, you know, it often gets mentioned around Halloween every year. You know, there's someone writing something about it. Um, and uh, it's got a kind of longevity that I would never have expected. I think the high point was a couple of years ago, we had a screening at um, the BFI in the South Bank. And oh, yeah. We we were all there, Gillian Bevan, who played Dr. Pasco and Parkinson and, and me and uh, Leslie, the director, and Ruth, the producer. Um, and, you know, I think that's, that's, that was a kind of um, vindication of what we'd done kind of 20 years before, which was, which was it was kind of acknowledged as, as a decent piece of work and a, a kind of groundbreaking piece of work, if you like, um, you know, by, by an audience at the BFI. So um, that was a kind of accolade that really made really was uh, you know worthwhile for us really yeah I, I think I would say I mean this is you know you, you, I'm glad you know I'm glad it got its its sort of uh, resurgent I really am because I mean I can now have it on DVD which is great um, <laughs> but it it, it it really seemed like one of those things it was a perfectly timed but still like I'd say ahead of its time yeah um and seems to have got such a legacy I mean you know I know Darren Brown has uh uh Quoted oh, as saying yeah, yeah. influenced him on to do the séance, um, yeah. But even like all those found footage films, starting with the Blair Witch and those, it's there's a clear lineage in horror found footage, and this is in there. Well, you know what I I think I, another thing that again with hindsight I think well actually not with hindsight because I was thinking it at the time I'll be honest, and that is. Um, if you look at um, horror fiction in the 19th century, for instance, uh, Edgar Allan Poe wrote some stories which he put in magazines that uh, the, the content of the magazines was a mixture of stories and factual pieces, okay, mm. non So it might be a 
description of a ge- geographical adventure of an explorer going somewhere, and then there'd be a horror story, and then there'd be so it was a, it was kind of magazine format, you'd say in TV terms. Um, and what he did, and we're talking about the 1840s, you know, he would deliberately construct his stories to read like these non-fiction pieces mm. sometimes. So it would be, you know, manuscript found in a, in, in a bottle um, um, it was one of them, you know, which was a story. He just wrote a story, but he made it sound as if it had some other kind of verification to it. Um, and I was aware of that because, um, in again, in ghost fiction, in supernatural fiction, if you from the golden age, you know, of the turn of the last century. Um, often a ghost story starts in the first person. Okay, I'm going to tell you a story, but first of all, you have to believe me, this really, really happened. Mm. And the majority of the first part of the story is saying, no, this really, really did happen. And kind of pleading for the authenticity to enable you to then tell the story, okay? And it was bugging me, I think, uh, around the time I pitched Ghostwatch, I was... I was uh, I was thinking, what is the equivalent of that literary device? What's the equivalent on television um, of that literary literary device of the first person narrative? Mm. And of course, it's of course it's documentary. It's putting a mm. camera in someone's face and the person on camera saying, "No, this really, really happened to me." Okay, so that's one of the fundamental things about Ghostwatch: is a camera pointed at someone, documentary fashion, and them telling you, "No, this really happened to me." Uh, and that, from a ghost story point of view, was was my was a key to, to how to make it kind of work. I think on television, I wanted that that sense that um, um, you know people get so wise about the way horror is constructed um, in in film terms. Oh, I get it. You know, we get a scary bit at the beginning, then we get a likable family. You know, yeah. the father to his dog, or they might have some problems, but he's kind to his kids, and yeah, yeah, yeah. When something scary can happen, and it's all kind of. It's all very easy to not let get under your skin because it's it's fabricated. I mean, mm. even a good horror film like Poltergeist, say, uh, the the, the Tobe Hooper Spielberg film, it's still a construction. It's still a screenplay. It still hits certain points in the screenplay structure. Um, and I guess in the back of my mind, I was thinking, how do you just tell it differently? How do you tell it? Um, how do you tell it in a way that makes the audience unnerved because they feel it's really going on? Um, so that that's part of the mix as well, yeah. Just to interrupt, I mean, if, from what you're saying, it's very interesting you say it because one of the things I was going to say is on that on that lineage is going back to that idea of, you know, it's almost like you are intruding on somebody else's, you know what I mean, you'll see it from their perspective, yeah. the first person. Yeah. Going back to, for example, Bram Stoker writing Dracula, the entire book is written from journal entries and letters. and Absolutely, the, yeah. Very, very important. Yeah, that's a very good observation. And then the next one along, I always thought, I'm watching this again, is, is what is thinking of things like the War of the, War of the Worlds. You know, yeah, so yeah. When, it, when it was done by yeah. Orson Welles and people assumed it was a real news broadcast. And Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I have to say, obviously, when I was pitching it, I think that the producer might have mentioned before I did that, the, you know, this has the potential be, to be a television War of the Worlds kind of thing. Um I mean, I, ne- I never honestly uh, predicted that the, the scale of a reaction that, that we would have got. I, I aimed for maybe five minutes of people thinking, what the hell is this? This seems, mm. you know, and then kind of, oh, I get it. And then, all right, that's quite clever. We'll see where this goes, kind of thing. Um, but I didn't think, I mean, I'll tell you a curious thing, which I've told many times, but um, there's a, a friend of mine that I, I 
saw a week before the, the initial broadcast. And um, as I do often when I see my friends, if I've got something coming out, I, I said, oh, there's something written by me going out next Saturday if you want to watch it. And then I saw her um, afterwards and she said, uh, oh, yes, I watched that. I thought it was real. I thought it was really happening. And I said, but I told you the week before it was really <laughs> it was written by me. Um, and she said, yeah, but when I saw Michael Parkinson, I thought you must have got it wrong. Yeah, it's, so that, it's that level it's of reality. Kind of over, uh, over right, overwriting, you know, what you previously know, kind of thing. Really, mm. it's most uh, most curious. No, I mean, I think you know, it's 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 been really interesting to learn so much about this and to talk to you about it. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm so glad. I'm so glad it's got a resurgence and that people are getting to see it. And uh, when I've when I've mentioned to people, oh, I'm doing this. I'm doing a, like a you know a ghost watch uh, review kind of episode for. Halloween this year, everyone's like, oh, I love that. Oh, it was amazing. That I watched that as a kid. So <laughs> many people great. were talking about that in the playground. So it, it, it's... Oh, that's, that, that was great. And uh, we got sent, uh, or the, uh, the director got sent, um, uh, her local school, I think, stopped for the whole morning and the kids started drawing pictures of what they'd seen, you know. So we got... Um, we got some pictures of the ghost and that kind of thing. And, uh, uh, you know, it was... You know, it's it. You know, what can I say? It's it's tremendous to have that effect on, um, uh, you know, on people that watch something. Not everyone, you know, not everyone liked it. I'm sure lots of people thought it was crap. Lots of people weren't convinced for a minute. And lots of people, but but you know, when I do these screenings, people come up and say, um, you know, that scared me to death. I couldn't have the light out for a whole <laughs> week. But 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 then they say they say literally the same person will say, but I absolutely love it. It's the best thing that I've ever seen in my life. And I never quite know how to react to that because I never know whether to say, oh, sorry, or thanks very much. <laughs> so I, I normally, kind of, normally kind of say both, really. But it's curious, that mixture of this really traumatised me for weeks. and you know. In this uh, day and age, but, though, to have the ability to do that is... A, that's it. I mean, to have the ability to scare someone like that in this day and age is a real... You know, that's definitely a compliment. Yeah. Well, actually, I think the most complimentary thing was um, we did an, for, for the documentary, which I really recommend if you haven't seen it. Um, it's called Behi- uh, Ghost Watch Behind the Curtain. Mm. And um, it's, I think you can get it. Well, if you Google it, you'll, you'll find where to get it. Um, it's a really good documentary about the making of it that interviews everyone. But, uh, um, oh, my God, I, I just completely forgot what I was going to say then. What, were you, what did you just say then? Uh, the compliment, the compliment of it being oh, scary. That's right. That's what I was. We did, we did. One of the people that talked on the documentary was we did some interviews up in the Electric um, Cinema in um, Birmingham. Oh yes. And the guys that run that uh, were talking, and um, one of them was did the programming for the for a horror festival up there, and, and quite, I think it's called Shock and Awe. Well, it was at the time anyway, and. Um, he said, uh, "I probably wouldn't get into, wouldn't have got into my love of horror films if I hadn't seen that." And I thought that is the, that is the best thing someone can say that you, you know, you make some. You know, well, it goes back, doesn't it? You've handed on the baton. I, I, I was really influenced by Nigel Neal, Stone Tape. Mm-hmm. You know, I made what what I could make. Um, you know, with the team, obviously, and then someone else is inspired by that. Maybe they'll make another. A, Maybe they'll go on to be a, a, a horror filmmaker, and and so it goes on, you know. And the uh, it's great to feel that you're part of that ongoing development of the genre, really. Oh yeah, no, it's it's a milestone as far as I'm concerned. It's it's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. The one thing I would say is just as a sort of a, to round all this out, the original pitch 
Um, all this started with back in 1988 or 89 of you doing that six episode docudrama, you know, looking for. Yeah. Do you think that could ever happen? Because I love the idea of that, like a six episode kind of going <laughs> off to a council estate and, you know, doing that thing of like yeah. hearing the stories and it escalating it week on week. And especially with, you know, TV is, is big now. I was wondering, would, would ever that, do you yeah. think you could ever repitch it? I don't know whether I've even got it. I don't know whether I've got that version. Um, I might have got bits and pieces of it in, in the file somewhere, but I tell you, I've got so much paperwork going back over the last 20 <laughs> years, whether I can actually find it. I think I probably, um, I'd probably, you know, I'd probably do something a bit different now rather than something quite, because, that, because you know, uh, there was a quite heavy kind of scene that I did use in the finished thing in terms of the backstory and all the rest of it. Um, mm. So I'd rather create something new. Always think forward. I think really, yeah. even though it's fun, it's fun to revisit the past and realise that people like something. I like to, uh, I like to think of the next thing rather than the, the last thing, really, if possible. Yeah, very good point, Stephen. It's been fantastic talking to you. I've uh, enjoyed it. Thanks very uh, and much. And this has nice. been it's been fascinating. And uh, uh, any anything you want to say to the to the listeners before we uh, sign off? Um, well, it's nice to celebrate. Maybe it's nice, be nice for them to watch Ghost Watch on Halloween night after 25 years later. I'm always interested in what they thought of it and what they think about it afresh. <clears throat> but, um, but also, I, I hope that if they're fans of the genre, that they, you know, create their own work and um, keep the uh, keep the noble tradition of scaring people to death going um, long after I turn up my toes brilliant alright excellent nice to talk to you you All too right. thank you very much alright pleasure cheers Stephen bye okay folks so that was our celebration, 25 years of Ghostwatch. Uh, I've got to say, if you haven't seen it or you don't want to talk about, seriously go out and track this thing down. You can find it on DVD pretty easily on eBay, and it's pretty cheap, and it still holds up. It's really well worth uh, giving a go on Halloween night. And a big thanks to Stephen Volk for uh, giving up his time for the interview, and uh, get in contact. What do you think of Ghostwatch? What did you think of the interview? Uh, let me know. Contact me on Twitter at 20th Century Geek or on Gmail. It's 20th Century Geek at Gmail. And then all the 20th Century Geeks on Facebook, on Tumblr, on Instagram. Uh, let me know what you think. Uh, it's great to hear from you. Okay. Enjoy your Halloween or Halloween, Halloween preparations. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks very much.